0: Last week, we began a new series called The Great God, Amazing Salvation. And in this series, we're going to look into the Book of Romans for the next several weeks. If I had to choose one biblical book that the church needs to rediscover today, I'm gonna choose the Book of Romans. And the reason is, there are so many counterfeit and shallow versions of the gospel floating around the world today, even inside the churches. And as a result, many of us live with sluggish, spiritual lives. But the book of Romans begins with this incredible thesis. It says the gospel is not some lame, weak, impotent message. No, no, no. The true gospel is the power of God for salvation. The true gospel is a supernaturally explosive power that propels us into the kingdom of God. And so that's the thesis of Paul for the whole book of Romans, and he goes on to expound on that. But of course, the question is, how can the gospel be so powerful? How can it be explosively powerful in my life? Well, to explain that, Paul now begins by giving us a profound analysis of what's wrong with the world. You know, like they say, you have to first understand the bad news for you to appreciate the good news. So we won't come to grips with the power of the gospel unless we understand sin and faith. So in this passage that we're looking at today, Paul is going to give us a profound analysis. And here's what he says in Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, this passage is one of the most profound analysis of what the human predicament is. And it's so jam-packed, it's so full that we can talk about this for several weeks and we won't even exhaust all of it. But for today, let's just, put on laser focus and narrow it down and just focus on what Paul says about sin and faith. Because what Paul says here about sin is crucial to understanding our situation in our own hearts. And therefore, ultimately, it's crucial to how we can understand and appropriate the explosive power of the gospel in our lives. So three things about sin here. Let's talk about the root of sin. Let's talk about the consequence of sin, and lastly, the healing of sin. Now, number one, we have to understand first, what are the roots of sin? What is the root of sin? Every Christian knows what sin is. We have an idea what sin is, but what is its essence? What is at its core? Now, this passage, Paul shows us how sin develops and progresses in our lives. Three times there, he says, God gave them up. And that's when people started to do all kinds of sins. Now, I'll I'll explain more about that phrase. But for now, notice that it was when God gave them up in the loss of their hearts. That's when they were thrown to impurity. They started to dishonor their bodies. It was when God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's when people started to commit sexual sins, right? And it's when God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, that's when people started to do, verse 29 on, started to do deceit and malice and envy and all these different kinds of sins. So these are are the things that people think about. Sexual sins, sins against people, sins against God. These are the kinds of things that most people think about when we talk about sin. But notice Paul says, That's not the real issue. Those sins only came later on. It was only when God gave us up because of some deeper problem. In other words, those sexual sins and social sins and all these things, they are only the fruits of a deeper fundamental problem in the human heart. That's why many of us We keep trying to repent of these sins, of some sexual sin or some other kind of sin. We keep trying to get rid of it, but we end up going back to it. We end up going back to it or there's some other sin pops up in our lives. Why? Because it's not enough to keep plucking away at the fruits. Paul says, as long as the bad roots are in there, you're going to keep producing bad fruits. Well, the question is, What then is the root of sin? What's the bad roots there? Well, to understand this, we have to take a few steps back and understand Paul's premise to his answer. Now, the premise that Paul gives us is that God has made it plain to everyone. God is using everything in the universe to communicate something about him to humanity. I mean, just look at the beauty of the world around us, the intricacy, the design, the genius the balance of everything, all of that, Paul says, is telling us something about God's eternal power and divine nature. So that means everyone, everywhere, every time they look at the world, they're being told something about God, something about God. And so regardless of what people tell themselves or what they say they believe, deep down, We all know there is a God, and we know something about him. It may not be everything, but we know something about him. The problem is, Paul says, people suppress the truth. We push it down. We silence it. We try to repress the knowledge about God because why? Because people did not want to honor him as God or give thanks to him. People don't want God to be God. That's the root of sin. It's the rejection of God as God. We don't want to give thanks to Him and therefore admit and acknowledge that He is the Creator. Because then that means I'm just a creature who's utterly dependent on Him every single second of my life. Because then that means I'm completely accountable to Him. I owe Him everything and he owes me nothing uh, that means i have no control i don't get to decide how i live i don't have no i don't have any bargaining chips here god is god and we are not and therefore the only way i can relate to him is by grace see and paul says we hate that we hate that we have no control we hate that we're utterly dependent and accountable to him we hate that We reject God as God, and we hate that idea that we are not. See, Paul is saying sin is more than just our actions. It's not just what we do with our hands. It's not just a mistake of the mind. Fundamentally, sin is a rebellion of the heart. And as long as that bad root is in there, you're gonna keep producing bad fruits. Do you see why this actually shows us that sin is a bigger problem than what most people think? Here's why. Think about the parable the prodigal son. The younger son rejects the father, and he does that by being disobedient, by being immoral, by being licentious, right? He's doing all these different things, and he rejects his father, obviously. But then when you look at the older son, the older son, here's a guy who's you know, well-behaved, well-adjusted, he's respectable, he's moral, he's obedient to the father. But then at the end, we're actually shown that this older son just as much rejects the father as the younger son does. Because what does the older son say? The older son says, well, Father, I did this for you. Why are you doing this for me? Don't you owe me this? See? In other words, he was obeying the Father to get what he wants, to get what he wants from the Father, to get him in his debts, to control the Father. So, either it's disobedience or obedience, both of them actually Resist and reject the father as their father. In other words, both of them had the same bad roots. See, you may be disobedient or obedient. You may be moral or immoral. You may be full of virtue or full of vices. But it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the root, if the bad root is there, then you're going to keep producing bad fruits. You're going to keep trying to seize control from God. You're going to resist being dependent and utterly accountable to Him. You're going to resist relating to God by grace alone. See, no matter how beautiful or ugly the fruits of your life may be, no matter how beautiful your life may look like, God sees the heart And if the roots of sin are there and he sees you're rejecting him, then no matter how beautiful the fruits may be, God knows it's rotten at the core. And therefore, listen, it's not enough to just look at all the do's and don'ts of the Bible and try to live up to them. It's not enough. The way to deal with sin, it's not enough to just reinforce your willpower and discipline yourself and put up structures and and systems in place to prevent you from doing wrong things, that's not enough. It's not enough to change your habits. It's not enough because sin goes deeper than just obedience or disobedience. Sin goes deeper than just morality or immorality. Sin fundamentally is the rejection of the human heart. It's the rejection of God. You don't want Him as God. See, sin, it, it, it's more than just breaking God's laws. It's about breaking God's heart. It's about breaking the most basic relationship of man and God. That's the root of sin. We reject Him as God. And therefore, number two, inevitably, there are consequences to that sin. When we reject God, ultimately, Paul says, We exchange God. We exchange the glory of the immortal God. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And in other words, we don't only reject God, we actually replace him with something else. We replace him with an idol. Now, you may say, whoa, wait a minute. I don't worship any statues or carven images. No, I don't worship any of that. What do you mean idol, idolatry? Well, listen. If you love anything more than God, if your life revolves around anything more than God, if your emotions and thoughts and imagination is captivated by anything more than God, if your values and self-worth and mission in life is rooted in anything more than God, then you replace God. You exchange God you've taken up something to replace God, to be the center of your life. And sure, yeah, ancient people did that with wood and stone, but modern people, we do that with money or sex and fame and politics and people, we also do that. We've kicked God out of the center of our lives and we've replaced something else to be the main thing of our lives. Paul says that's what happens. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And the lie is that this thing can somehow replace God. This thing can replace the security that God gives me, the satisfaction, the control, the power, the dignity, the purpose, the happiness. That thing, that thing, it can give me those things. And Paul says, That's the lie of idolatry. And inevitably, because we reject God, we replace him with something else. And therefore, look, if you look at all your sins, if you trace it all the way down, all of it traces back to the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is the sin beneath every sin. That's the sin, the primary sin that we need to repent from. It, this is what leads us to all kinds of sin in our lives. Now, you may be wondering, whoa, wait a minute, how does idolatry lead to all kinds of sin? How does it leads to envy? What do you mean? Well, here's how Paul traces that out for us, right? He says, because people reject God and replace him with idolatry, therefore, the wrath of God is revealed against idolatry. Now, the wrath of God, that just means that God is a perfectly righteous judge. He's perfectly righteous, and so he won't turn a blind eye to evil. He's not not just up there in heaven, chillaxing, unconcerned with the evil and suffering happening here. No, God's heart is passionately involved in justice and righteousness, and therefore, There's wrath, real wrath against evil and and, and injustice and unrighteousness. There's real wrath there. Now, in other places of the Bible, we're told that God's wrath will ultimately come at the end of time. But in the meantime, God is giving us a window of opportunity to wake up, to come to our senses and go back to Him and ask for forgiveness and be saved from the wrath that is coming for sin. But Paul also says that in the meantime God's wrath is being revealed. There's going is he's showing us signs, a foretaste of what that wrath is like. How so? How is God's wrath being given a foretaste now? Well, Paul says God's giving people Now, the word gave up there, that is a word that means to surrender to your enemies. God's surrendering us to our enemies. Now, who are the enemies here? The enemies here is ourselves. We're our enemies here. Paul is saying, because we stubbornly insist on chasing idols instead of going to God, God is surrendering us to our idols. God is essentially not going to stop us anymore. He's not going to stop us anymore. He's going to stop intervening. He's going to step aside and let us do exactly what we wanted. God's form of judgment is to give you exactly what you wanted. And don't you think, on the one hand, that's the most fair thing? But also, that's the scariest thing that can happen to you. Because if left to ourselves, and we keep chasing after idols, that's going to destroy us because idolatry destroys our humanity. It warps it, it distorts our humanity. And see, Paul in this passage also shows us what that looks like, this ugly picture of what an idolatry unchecked looks like. First of all, idolatry makes us into slaves. It says there, when we replace god we come to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator we serve these idols now the irony here is if you look back at genesis at the account where god made man it says there that god also gave humanity the authority to exercise dominion over creation that means we're god's representatives on earth and we're supposed to be like God in that respect. We're supposed to be a loving king that nurtures and flourishes the creation around us, right? But we're supposed to rule, an essential aspect of our humanity is to rule as a loving king over creation. But idolatry reverses that order. Instead of being a loving king, we become pitiful slaves. And that just doesn't work. That just doesn't work with how God designed us to be humans. See, for instance, take money. Now, there's nothing wrong with money. We can do lots of great things with money. We use money to provide for our family, to get access to great health care, to help other people, so we can do all sorts of great things with money. As long as we manage and, and use our money well, It's going to serve us well. It's going to help us be truly human. But what if you make money into an idol? It reverses the order. See, you're supposed to use money for your family, for your health, for for other people. But when money is an idol, you actually sacrifice these things. You compromise on these things to get more money. And you're no longer managing money. Money is managing you. You're being used by money to serve it. And that just doesn't work. See, idolatry reverses the order and it makes you into a pitiful slave. And that destroys our humanity. And it keeps us as a slave because number two, idolatry also inflames us with overwhelming desires. It says there that God gave us up in the lusts of our hearts. Now, the Greek word for lust there is epithemia, which is something like epidesire or, or like something like epicenter, right? Now, ESV translates that word as lusts. And that's a pretty good translation, but we, when we say lust, we often think of sex. That's not exactly it. The, what it really means is to have an inordinate desire. A super desire, an over desire. Now, some years ago, I read an article by Dr. David Powelson that, and he talks about this little Greek word here. And here's what he says he says that every time the New Testament talks about idolatry, that word, epithemia, comes up. It's always connected. And basically, Here's what the New Testament and Paul is telling us. Idolatry creates over-desires in us. It creates these strong epicenter of desire that causes ripples across our hearts. It causes all kinds of havocs in our lives. And now, Dr. David Paulson, he's a distinguished counselor. He says, the biblical explanation for idolatry is the only one that perfectly diagnoses and explains everything that he's seen and heard unfold in people's lives as a counselor. And this is going to explain your own heart as well. See, if something is an idol, it creates that over-desire in you. It creates that over-desire in you. See, if something is an idol in your life, you're not just driven to get it, you're obsessed. If you can't get that idol, you're just worried. You, you, you get crippling anxiety. You're not just upset, you, you, you rage. You become despondent. You become crippled. See, when you make mistake, you don't just regret your mistake, you, you find it hard to even forgive yourself. All your emotions and your desires and your thoughts, they're all off the charts. It's all turned to the max and even beyond. See, that's what idolatry does. Paul says, because we stubbornly chase after idols and we reject God, God gave us up to that over-desire. He lets go. And we're thrown to our idolatry. And this idolatry takes more and more control over our hearts, inflaming us with these over-desires. And see, that over-desire is going to keep pushing us beyond the point of exhaustion, beyond the point of burnout. It's going to keep pushing us, chase after this idol. It's going to keep crushing us with these overwhelming emotions that we were not supposed to to manage. And even if you do get your idols, what happens? You don't get satisfaction. You don't get the rest that you thought you would find. No. That over-desire actually becomes bigger and more demanding. It's not enough. It's never enough. And so, idolatry keeps us as its slave and actually turns us into addicts who want to be slaves, chasing after our idols more and more and more. And lastly, third, idols actually blind our minds. See, it says there, God gave us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And what follows is a list of all kinds of things that ought not to be done. Now, here's what that means. Deep down, we know there are certain things we shouldn't do. We know we shouldn't be uh, full of evil and covetousness and malice. We know we shouldn't des- be full of deceit and lie and cheat to get our away with things. We know we shouldn't be Uh, disobedient to parents, even though they're telling us to do things we don't want to do? We know we shouldn't be heartless and ruthless and use and manipulate people. We know we should not do these things. But the problem is idolatry makes us into slaves and addicts who would more and more become willing to cross those lines in order to serve our idols, in order to get more of our idols. But we know we shouldn't, so what do we do? Our minds go into overdrive, trying to find some rationalization, trying to find some justification to do those things. We come up with all sorts of lies to ourselves, becoming blinded to our own motives and situations so that we can do those things and cross those lines. So we say things like, oh, you know, well, everybody's doing it. Or we say things like, well, you know, I'm just a victim. I'm a victim of the system. Or or we say, I'm only doing this for the sake of my loved ones. And see, our mind makes up all these rationalizations and excuses and justifications. And Paul says, because we're so stubborn, With our idolatry, God gives us up to a debased mind, to becoming more and more worthless and futile in our thinking, becoming blinded and more blinded, becoming worse and worse. See, these are the consequences of that root of sin in our hearts. We become slaves to our idols, inflamed with these over-desires, keeping us as addicts. And in our minds, our minds are trying to convince us that everything's all right. And so we're stuck in this terrible cycle of becoming worse and worse and losing more and more of what it means to be a human. And eventually, we end up sinning more and more and more. And Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of that, the consequences of that, is death it's death how then can we find number three the healing of sin how can we be healed from that how can we be healed not just with the fruits of sin and life but down deep all the way to the roots of sin what can heal us what what's supposed to replace those roots or put it this way what is the opposite of sin What's the opposite of sin? If sin is more than just obedience or disobedience, it's more than just virtue or vice, that means this opposite of sin is not obedience. The opposite of sin is not morals. The opposite of sin is not virtue. The opposite of sin is faith. It's faith. See, sin, Sin rejects God and wants to replace it with something else. Sin rejects God's control and and God's sovereignty and being accountable to God. And and we, we reject relating to Him by grace alone. See, that's sin. But faith, faith surrenders to God. Faith honors God as God and says, Lord, I throw myself at your feet because you owe me nothing, but I owe you everything. I owe you every single second of my life. I'm completely accountable to you. And therefore, Lord, I can only come to you asking for grace. That's what faith is. And that is what heals the deepest roots of our hearts. Faith is what we need. That's why Paul says, the gospel of salvation comes through faith. Remember the thesis of the whole book of Romans. Paul says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And is it written, The righteous shall not die. They won't die from their sins. They shall live by faith. It's all faith what we need is faith. But of course, the real question is, how can sin in our hearts turn into faith? Because deep down, let's be honest here, deep down, you know there's a part of you that still rejects God. You know, even though you're Christians, deep down, there's a part of you that does not want to be accountable to God. Deep down, there's that part of you that doesn't want to lose all control and and depend on God. Deep down, even though you know those idols in your life are destructive and ugly, deep down you know you don't want to let go. How then can people like us, pitiful slaves and addicts who who, are, who want to remain in our mystery, how can we be broken out of that cycle and turn into faith? How can that part of you turn into faith? Paul says, the answer is the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power for those who are powerless like us. It's the hope for those who are hopeless like us. See, it's no longer just our power. It's His. How? How can the gospel then, Be the power of God for salvation. How? Here's why. Down there in verse 32, it says, We know that God's righteous decree is that those who practice such things, such sins, deserve to die. In other words, we know that the righteousness of God means death for me. It should mean death for me, the righteousness of God. It should make me afraid and terrified. It means wrath for me. But the gospel reveals that the righteousness of God can actually mean life. That the, gospel, the, the gospel reveals that the righteousness of God can actually mean healing and faith and life for those who deserve to die. Now, how can that happen? How can the righteousness of God mean something else than wrath and death? How can it mean life and healing? Here's how. Because the gospel reveals that in the most astonishing act of righteousness, God sends Jesus on the cross to die for people like us. People who have replaced him... Jesus comes to replace us on the cross. And so the wrath of God for sin comes bearing down on Christ. He became sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, we become the righteousness of God, and we live by faith. See, that's the power of the gospel. And that's exactly what we need so that our hearts turn from sin to faith. That's why the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In other words, the gospel is what sparks faith in us. It's what sustains faith in us. And it's what leads us to even greater faith. Or put it this way, the gospel is like the sunlight, that shrivels up the bad roots of sin and it's what gives life to the good roots of faith in our hearts because the gospel is what finally melts at our hearts rejection of god it's what finally convinces our hearts that he is beautiful and it's utterly good utterly amazing utterly wonderful to surrender to him And what we have to do is we have to constantly expose our hearts to the sunlight of the gospel. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to put the roots of idolatry out to the sunlight of the gospel? Let me give you three practical steps to end all of this. First step that you have to do, is you have to name the roots, not just the fruits. Now, what I mean here is, when we're trying to deal with sin, we often focus on the fruit sins, the, the, the sins that are visible, right? Sexual sin or social sin, we tend to focus on that because they're visible and the damage being done is, is more obvious. But Paul says we need to go deeper. We need to go target the roots of sin. In other words, you have to ask yourself, well, what is the sin of idolatry hiding behind all this, pulling the strings of my heart so that I'm sitting like this, so that I'm acting like this? What is the idol that's causing me to sin? In order to address that idol, you have to identify it. So you have to name it, call it out, Tell yourself, this is the idol that I need to repent from, right? So first, you have to name it. And secondly, you have to reject it. You have to learn to reject that idol. Now, how do you do that? The, the, point, the fact is, this thing became an idol because it, it seems attractive and beautiful and promising. But you need to learn to see beyond all of that. See beyond the illusion, beyond the mists of its beauty. See, actually that it's destructive and ugly. And for, to do that, of course, you need the power of the Spirit. Of course, you need the, 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 the truth of the Scriptures. But you have to see how this idol actually is making you into a slave, how it's causing all kinds of havoc in your heart through these over-desires, how it's blinding your mind from the truth and the reality of what's happening in your life. Look at how it's warping your humanity. And most importantly, look at how this idol, this idolatry, is grieving the heart of your Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became sin so that you can have his righteousness and life. Ultimately, that's what convinces you to say there's nothing beautiful in all this. It's ugly, it's destructive, it's terrible. So first, you have to name it, then you have to reject it, and lastly, you have to replace it. You have to replace it with Jesus Christ. See, idolatry is rejecting God and replacing Him with something else. And to repent from that, to have faith, you have to reject that idol and replace God back into the center of your life. Now, how do you do that? Well, First of all, you have to understand what was it you're really looking for when you looked at that idol. You have to ask yourself, what was I really looking for in this idol? What was I really looking for in money? Really? It's not just money per se. What was I looking for in money? Is it control? Is it security? Is it significance? Is it happiness? What was I really looking for in money that I can only truly find in Jesus Christ. So what you have to do is you have to relocate those desires back to where it belongs, back in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is where you find that satisfaction, that purpose and dignity, that power and control, that happiness and peace, all of that can be found in Christ alone, and even more. So you have to relocate those desires. Replace the idols with Christ. So you have to name it, reject it, and replace the idols with Jesus Christ. Now, is it it easy to do these things? No, it's difficult. Is it going to be fast? No, it's going to take you years and decades and perhaps all through your life to keep doing this again and again. But is it worth it? Yes. Is going to require from you lots and lots of prayer, asking for the Spirit to open your heart. It's going to require you lots and lots of scripture reading to see the truth and see how that truth is exposing the lies in your heart. This is going to require lots and lots of soul searching, honest soul searching. This is going to require from you lots and lots of painful conversations, that involve people telling you the truth. This is going to involve lots and lots of deep fellowship with Christians so that you learn to replace idols with Christ. It's hard, but it's worth it. Is it possible? Yes. Because you have the gospel, which is Jesus as the power of God, for salvation for you so that you can have faith and find healing for your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the righteous God. And we know, Lord, deep in our hearts that that means we deserve wrath, we deserve death, we deserve no good thing But you, O Lord, you made a righteousness for us through Jesus Christ. And through that, O Lord, now your righteousness can mean life and healing for us. So, Lord, we throw down ourselves at your feet once more. Thank you, Lord. Grateful to you. We worship you, we love you, we surrender to you, Lord. We ask for faith, greater faith, turning every part of our hearts from idolatry and sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to reject the idols in our hearts and to replace them and rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, the one who became sin for us so that we become your righteousness. Father, we ask for you power. We ask that you give us the truth to to confront the lies in our hearts and our minds. We ask for you, Lord, to teach us these things and help us, Father, to turn to you in complete faith. Thank you, Lord. We praise and thank you. And all these things we pray in gratitude in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through whom the gospel becomes the power for salvation to us in his name we pray amen amen thank you for joining our online worship i pray that this message blesses you and, and, and deepens our understanding and appreciation of the gospel god bless you